Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to the Switzer Money Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. So um, we've got a really interesting show today, Paul. We've got um, the founder of Netflix who comes to Australia next week, Mark Randolph. Uh, we'll be talking to him. Um, we've got the, uh, the guy who basically bought back his family business, Janos Hooker, um, bought back LJ Hooker from uh, Suncorp. A bank owned his his family's business, and I guess they're celebrating their ninetieth year of um, L.J. Hooker being in um, uh, business. And I guess, given the fact he bought back the family business, you could describe him as the happy hooker. You could, Peter. I mean, it's a name that uh, everyone knows. L.J. Hooker. Haven't we seen that uh, across nice. thousands and well thousands of homes? Yeah. I mean, uh, but anyhow, look, it's it's great to in some ways to know that uh, a business that was. Uh, yeah, part of a family dynasty, I mm. guess, and then went out and was bought by effectively a bank, and now it's been bought back by a relation to the founder. I think mm. that's uh, that's really encouraging. Interesting to hear what he's got to say. But speaking of founders, I mean, your uh, upcoming interview with the CEO of Netflix. I mean, hasn't Netflix changed the world? I, I mean, I remember my daughter introducing me to Netflix a couple of years ago, and I said I would never use Netflix, right? Yeah, <laughs> Why would yeah. I want to get videos streamed on demand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter, I was never going to do that, yeah. but of course... Uh, and being a tight one, you don't want to pay for stuff you well, get for nothing anyway. $10 a month. I was yeah. going to pay $10 a month, Peter. But, yeah. uh, but uh, look, I mean, because she pays, yeah. <laughs> she's her subscription. I mean, I can't say I'm a regular, but I mean, if you're on a weekend or something mm. and you find they've got such a huge variety of uh, yeah. of programs and you and you really wonder I guess what it means for the future for, for free to air television and what yeah. does that mean for things like Channel 9 and Channel 7 I mean look at kids today they don't watch TV yeah yeah they're either on their phones or they are to Netflix or Stan or whatever the streaming yeah. mechanism I, I don't know I can't I just wouldn't touch a, a free-to-air TV company. We, no. we must get one of those guys on to, uh, to give us about. the upside. Yeah, because certainly that's part of, the, part of the reason why Nine went you know, hunting for Fairfax as a as a, a partner and trying to make this media story of theirs work. But all old-fashioned media is really being challenged by things like Netflix. And it's a very interesting little interview. Um, and I must admit, a lot of people, I think, will be lining up to hear him speak when he's in, in Australia as well. All right, mate, so that's the show. Um, and we will be answering some of our uh, listeners' questions as well. But without any further ado, let's get, catch up with Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix. Now, Mark, I, I've kind of been watching your progress over the years without really knowing you. And uh, explain to my um, audience how you actually kicked off Netflix because it was it was a really old-fashioned way of kicking a, a business off, wasn't it? Considering what you're doing nowadays. Yeah, it, back then it was pretty primitive. Um, it, right now, people without starting a company like Netflix could do it in a weekend or even faster. They could just call up Amazon and boom, they're done. 
Uh, back then, the infrastructure wasn't there. There was no instant websites. There was no e-commerce places you could download to start from. We had to build everything from scratch. But more than that, we didn't even know what to build. We were still struggling with what is this idea? What really is going to work? Um, and so at the beginning, it was just how do you just test things and little by little work your way into is this idea actually going to work? Yeah, but, but didn't you start off by actually sending CDs out through the mail? That was the first business model of Netflix? Sure, that was the very beginning test, which is we came up with this idea that we could do video rental by mail. And at the time, though, video rental was done on VHS cassettes. They were big and they were heavy. And it didn't take a lot of research on my part to realize that's not going to work. Until all of a sudden we learned about this new technology called the DVD, and it was small and thin and light, and that gave us an idea. And so Reed Hastings and I were commuting over to work one day, and all of a sudden we go, you know, maybe, maybe this could change something. And we turned the car around and drove back into Santa Cruz, the town we lived in, and went to a record store and bought a used music CD, and then went a few doors down and got a little pink gift envelope, the type you put a greeting card in, and we put the CD in the envelope and we mailed it uh, to Reed's house in Santa Cruz. And the CD got there unbroken in less than a day. And that demonstrated to us that we could actually ship DVDs, do video rental through the mail using the postal service. And that changed everything. How, how did you trust? How could you trust people to a, send it back and all that sort of stuff? That must have been a, an initial anxiety point for the business? It absolutely was. But I'd been in the mail order business for a long time previously. And I had kind of formed this opinion that by and large, most people are honest. And that you'll get a lot further if you build a system that's easy to use, rather than one which just puts all kind of impediments in the way to someone cheating you. Because if you put these impediments to prevent anyone from cheating you, you inadvertently are making it hard for the other 99.5% of the people who are honest to do business with you. And with Netflix, yeah. it certainly uh, turned out that way. I, I can remember, uh, I, I would say it was about 10 years ago, and I can remember exactly where I was driving and I was listening to some propeller head on radio talking about a thing called convergence. And one of the things he said, one day, one day, they'll be able to stream a video into your home, into your TV, and as I drove along, I just said, yeah, sure, that's going to happen. <laughs> so you must have also learned about this possibility. Were you instantly a believer that this could happen, or did you have to test it out to, to, before you started putting money behind it? Well, it's funny you mention that, because, of course, on day one, before we had mailed a single DVD by mail, we had to raise money. And every single person you pitched to raise money said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. It's just a matter of weeks before every single person can stream or download this digital format. And the truth is they're right, that eventually everyone would be able to download or stream movies. What they're wrong about was the timeline. That actually were all kinds of reasons why it would took a lot longer than anyone envisioned, um, you know, 10 years. So the challenge for us was, I knew that eventually streaming was going to happen. I knew it would take a long time. And if I focused on streaming from day one, I'd be out of business. But if I built something which was totally about 
being the world's best shipper of plastic, I'd also be out of business when the world changed. So one of the smartest things I think we did was position the company kind of delivery agnostic. We built it around finding entertainment you love, which works whether you mail a DVD to someone, it works whether you stream it to someone, and it'll work, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now, and we can just beam it telepathically into your filling or something like that. Okay, one last question is we are running out of time. I could talk to you all day. Um, First of all, did you ever imagine the share price would be where it, it is today? And secondly, <laughs> what, what are you going to talk to Australian audiences about when you come here and you're on stage? So first of all, I never in a million years imagined that Netflix would be the success it is today. Uh, sincerely. Um, I mean, I remember trying to hire someone long ago and I was saying, I swear, one of these days, this stock you're getting is going to be worth $100. Um, and someone said, don't you feel bad, like, uh, misleading him like that? And I said, it's not misleading him if I believe it myself. And I've always... I think George Costanza said that once. I've always had this... George Costanza on Seinfeld said that once. (laughs) So when I I join you all in uh, Australia later this month, I'll talk about some of the stories from starting and growing Netflix, because it is kind of a gripping story. But the most important thing is that when we started, it was just an idea. And everybody has ideas. And what I want to tell people is that there's no reason why you can't make your idea come true the same way I was able to make my idea come true. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing you and seeing you in Australia. And uh, you've been a fantastic role model to young entrepreneurs out there. And uh, I really look forward to uh, seeing you uh, educate the entrepreneurs of Australia. Looking forward to being there very much. It's going to be great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot. It's long now. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Yeah, that uh, I should always throw in, as I always do. We talk about um, headline rates in that ad. We always say to all our listeners, when you're going for a loan, Paul, go looking for the comparison rate. Well, our headline rate and comparison rate is exactly the same because... We don't add fees in. And it is worth uh, asking exactly what the rate is, of course, because three of the major banks have now increased their standard variable rates. Last yeah. week we had, of course, uh, uh, both the ANZ and the Commonwealth Bank followed the week, sorry, the lead from Westpac the week before. Yeah. So rates are going up, uh, worth shopping around, worth asking exactly, you know, particularly if you're looking at one of these loans that has a, you know, a fairly attractive upfront rate, just mm. make sure you understand what happens, what the so-called underlying variable rate is, because yeah. they're still in the fives, Peter. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's, that's the thing a lot of people be surprised. And people who just don't do their homework are probably sitting on a, a 5% or something home loan when they could be as low as 3.89%. And ours is not the lowest. There are some online lenders who are lower. Uh, ours are you know, accessible over the phone, so a little bit easier than online. But still, this is you know, a time when people have to actually hunt around. My first question, Paul, mm-hmm. from Jenny in Oyster Bay in New South Wales is, she says, I'm buying my first home and apartment. And I'm stretching myself a little. Should I fix my home loan for five years? What if I wanted to sell a property before the five years are up? 
That's a great question. Be right, I, Paul, be right. Yeah, I like having a part of a loan fixed because I like to certainly from a budgeting perspective. Okay. Um, but if, Jenny, if you're thinking about buying, again, I, I, I sort of question why you would buy your first home and think about selling it within five years. That mm. seems to me very early because, yeah, yeah you're going to pay stamp duty to buy it unless you get a discount. You're going to pay selling fees on the way out. Often five years isn't long enough to really realise, at least to get the capital gain to realise some of the transaction costs, but maybe mm. your family's changing or whatever it is and there's some other reasons. But, look, uh, I'd fix part of it simply because I like the certainty. Mm. I don't think it, rates are going up that high, um, but I'd probably fix it part of it. Uh, look, again, if you fix the whole amount and you want to repay early, then that's obviously going to be a penalty. So the banks are last effectively allowed to, allowed to charge you hmm. the interest rate adjustment. So that's one of the downsides of fixing it. But it could work for you too. Yeah. I think, Jenny, the homework I would do, and I agree totally with what Paul said, uh, the homework I would do is find out what is the lowest variable rate you could get. So imagine if you got 3.89% and then you found that the five-year fixed rate was, say, 4.89%. That's 1%. That's going to be four interest rate rises. And I think, you know, if you really are worried and the five-year fix works for you, fine, do that. And, and, but maybe you should go three years. And three years may well be the, might be a smaller difference between the rate. You've got to, just, you've got to do your homework on this. The one thing I will say, a lot of people are petrified about breaking a fixed home loan because the news stories were terrible around the GFC where lots of people were locked in 8.5% home loans and all of a sudden they fell down to, to 4% or whatever and they wanted to get out. And when they tried to get out, the bank charged them a lot of money because the bank has to take that money and, and re-lend it at 4% and they've got you locked in at 85 or whatever. But when you lock in at low rates and interest rates rise, poor, it's likely that the breakout cost yeah, it, is it not can, going to be expensive. It, it can work for you because yeah. the, the bank's entitled to charge a, a small administration fee. That's only for the cost of doing it. But right. then they have to pay you an interest rate adjustment. Now, that either means you pay them or they pay you. Yeah. And it depends what the current then five-year fixed rate is relative to when you took out the loan, mm. effectively the term of your loan. Mm. And if rates have gone up since you took out your loan, the bank's going to be paying you because they can refinance it. You know, they can lend the money they had lent to you at a, a higher, higher rate, rate to somebody else. Yeah. If fixed rates have gone down, mm. then you'll end up paying them. So it doesn't always work against you. So I wouldn't really think that's the main consideration. Yeah. But uh, And as Peter said, look, uh, do your homework. I mean, you do pay a bit of an upfront premium for fixed rates because of the so-called, you know, what we call, we call a use the term of a positive yield curve, that is the rate for one year or two years is no, higher. Than, what you're talking about, but, uh, yeah, the longer you borrow, the higher the rate effect. Yeah, good point. Yep. Yep. Uh, but look, so do your homework. Uh, I like it more from budgeting, certainly. It's not necessarily going to give you the lowest, in lowest interest costs, mm. but I like to be able to know what my budget is. And also, Paul, if, say, for example, you're 50-50, we call them cocktail yep. loans, half, yep. half variable, half fixed. If, if there is, say, a half a percent rate rise, well, it's only a quarter percent to you because you've got yep. half your loan fixed. And a lot of people do do it on a 50-50 basis mm. for that very reason because mm. it gives them some flexibility to pay off the variable component faster. Yep. If they happen to you know, salary increases or they get some payment they weren't expecting, they can pay that all quicker. Mm. Meanwhile, they've got a certainty about what the other cost is. So, 
sometimes the cocktail alone works well. Okay, great. There's a question from Jack from Brighton in Victoria. He said, I, I have uh, an impressive clothes. Uh, I have to wear uh, clothing that's pretty impressive in my job, and my boss expects that I'm, which should be groomed better than the average guy to impress customers. Can I claim my clothing and grooming as a tax deduction on my tax return? Yeah, Jack, the bad news is probably not, mm. because the tax office has got some very specific rules around the type of... Uh, uh, of clothing you can claim, and it's got to be occupation specific. So, if you're a, if for example you work in uh, a fast food chain that requires you to wear a particular uniform, and you take that home and get, have to get that laundered, mm. that's claimable. Yep. If for example you're a uh, a builder, and you need to have protective, you know, boots uh, and footwear and with mm. steel caps, you can claim the cost of the boots. Mm. But if you're in a sort of professional occupation where you might wear a suit or smart casual clothes, the tax office says for some reason, you, hey, you could wear that on the weekend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not eligible. And so it's, uh, I think, people, Peter, I feel quite discriminated about this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so the no. tough news is that for most of us, unless the clothing is very specific to our occupation, mm. the answer is we cannot claim the cost of that or the laundry cost that goes with it. Yeah. I, I think if, if you, for example, were in a really highly paid occupation where you had to um, look extremely um, cutting edge, I'm thinking newsreaders, people like that, um, your accountant may well find that you've got justification for doing it. Yeah. People who are MCs at conferences where they're paid $36,000 over three days, they're paying a lot of tax. Maybe they could do it. I would go to an accountant and get it all yeah, checked. The general out. principle is you can't. No. And so the ATA's got some reasonable, helpful stuff up here. But look, they don't really like paying this deduction anyhow, so mm. they'd make it quite hard. But uh, look, it's, uh, it's a little bit of discrimination. At least I feel discriminated against Peter. You yeah, may no. not. But, uh, You're very sensitive about this. I am very sensitive about All this. All right, this was from Nina from Annadale, New South Wales. I've been told that if I'm a mum at home and I put some money into my super, the government will also put money in. Is this true? Well, it is true. In fact, Nina, there are three uh, ways that sort of uh, people on, on lowish incomes or people going out of the workforce for a period of time, perhaps on maternity leave or whatever, uh, can get assistance with their superannuation. The one that you're referring to, Nina, is called the uh, super co-contribution. And this is where if you put in, uh, say, $1,000 into your super, potentially the government will match it with $500. So it's done on a, on a $1 of government support for every $2 of contributions you make, one for two, up to a maximum of $500. And the only qualification, there are two qualifications on this. One is you've got your income's got to be below a threshold, and the, currently that threshold is uh, $52,697. And secondly, you've got to have some other income. So you, at least maybe if you've been working part of the year and you've, uh, you know, you've got some employment income, then at least 10% of your income's got to come from employment sources. Mm. So that's the super co-contribution, where the government helps people that are, are top up their super who are not don't have the same income but still making a contribution to super themselves. So that's yep. number one. Uh, number two, if you're, I don't know whether Nina's got a, a partner or not, mm. but uh, your partner may also be eligible for a tax offset. In other words, that's effectively a tax rebate. And if your partner uh, puts in up to $3,000 into your superannuation account, he or she could get a tax offset of up to $540 
Now the qualification there again is on your income. It's got to be under $37,000. So again, this is designed for low income workers. Yep. And the third one, which is new, it's only just come into effect, is, is called catch-up concessional contributions. Government's not going to help you and put any of their own money in here, but it is designed for people that are, uh, are going on things like maternity leave and then aren't able to make super contributions and then come back to work some years later. Mm. And effectively, they can sort of do a catch-up for the, for the years and they may not have made a contribution. It's up to a maximum of five years and allows you to effectively make up to $125,000 worth of concessional contributions on a catch-up basis. Yeah. A lot of people think, Paul, this was purely designed for for women who've been home with kids, but really any employee who's been out of the workforce can do it, whether it be man, woman or child. Yeah, nothing that says you've got to be a woman, nothing that says uh, the only... That's right, Peter. In fact, it's anybody... uh, in fact, of the case of the first one, the co-contribution, uh, it's anyone under 70 years of age, male or female. Mm. Uh, and in fact, uh, I've told you before how you can use it to help things like adult kids yep. uh, get their super, get a bit of a government boost into super. Mm. Uh, and uh, if they make a contribution or perhaps a very generous parent or grandparent makes a contribution, uh, the government then chips in as well. So it's, it's a way that uh, at least various governments have said, look, we recognise that particularly with people that are part-time in the workforce or itinerant in the workforce, sometimes low-income earners, getting a bit of a super nest egg can be hard. Hmm. And there are three uh, ways that the government is trying to help. Excellent. That's, we're out of time for questions, mate. But uh, I think there's some very interesting uh, issues there that people should be thinking about, particularly if they are at home and they want to try and build up their super. Some really good ideas. Now, after the break, we'll be talking to the... The grandson of LJ Hooker, who bought back the business. Giannis Hooker, coming up next. As a special offering for our podcast listeners, we're going to give you access to our conferences that are coming up this week. These are the Switzer Listed Investment Conferences. It's the 11th of September in Brisbane, the 12th of September in Melbourne, and the 13th of September in Sydney. All you have to do is go to switzer.com.au slash event and click register now. Select the event in your city, then click on the green tickets button and enter the promotional code P-O-D, and you'll get access to tickets to these conferences. I hope I see you there. And now I'd like to introduce you to the chairman of LJ Hooker, Janis Hooker, who recently claimed back the family business after it was lost many years ago and ended up in the hands of Suncorp, the bank. Welcome to the program, mate. It's great to be here, Peter. All right, so Janis, 90 years commemorating the, the start of LJ Hooker. You took over the business 10 years ago. How important is this for you? Oh, it's huge. Um, for any business to have uh, been through 90 years, mm. we started back in 1928, is a massive milestone. Yeah. So we're very happy and, and the business has proven year in, year out that we can continue innovating. I'm sure people listening to this program, um, and I, I've got to say, once upon a time there was a department store in Dublin called Switzers, and allegedly we were related to it, but we no longer are related to it. It must be fantastic to, to make a comeback into a family business that was yours. And did, did it grit on you when you weren't owning it and someone else had it and that business your grandfather started was out there and probably not doing as well as you would have liked? A, did it grit on you? And B, what was it like when you eventually took it back? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a, 
it was a, a statement that I made in high school back in the 80s that, yep, I'd, I'd like to buy the family business back. Mm. But that was a statement as a teenager. Yeah. Um, but really, it was, a, it was a pretty focused effort for about 10 years. And mm. it wasn't until, I suppose, the global financial crisis came along mm. that all the banks, um, including Suncorp, more focused on their core business. Yep. And after a, a long negotiation, it became available and they managed to, uh, to take it back into the family. Mm. And how has it changed under your leadership? Mm. Um, well, it's now a in a private company environment. Um, it's now owned by an individual. Uh, all of our franchisees are individuals who own their businesses, and we serve customers who are also people. So fundamentally, our business is a people business. And a very famous quote from my grandfather was, you know, property is not about real estate, it's actually about people. Mm. And so, you know, that was the big change of me coming back in into the business. Mm. But when you came in, you would have had a whole bunch of franchisees who'd been dealing with the bank. And even though they're, they're lovely institutions in their own rights, well, mm. sometimes they are, they must have loved the fact that a family member was coming back and that you would be a more human face of the organisation. And when you said something, you actually could make it happen. Yeah, there was definitely a, 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 a stronger connectivity to the ownership. Yeah. And look, many of those franchisees had been in the business for two, sometimes three generations. And often they had you know, a son and a daughter and, and a wife working in those businesses. Hmm. So back in family hands resonated much better with my franchisees. Okay. Can I ask you this question? Your, your grandfather started this 90 years ago. Obviously, he was L.J. Hooker. Uh, unless he named it after his wife, and in those days men didn't do things like that. So, w w A, was he a real estate agent? And B, how did he have the vision to grow that thing so quickly and to build that brand? What was so special about him? Um, he'd come from a, a, a very underprivileged background, mm. and his whole philosophy was about giving back. So he cared intimately about the staff around him and the whole purpose of the business was to grow something that would actually not only grow an amazing business but help build a nation. Mm. And so in the, in, in the post-World War II era, uh, when his business really took off, I mean, he survived through the Great Depression, through the World War II, but in the post-World War II era, when the immigration boom was coming, um, he noticed there was a massive housing crisis. Mm. And that's where he went forward and he built one in five homes for the next 40 years. And also, on top of that, built the greatest agency business, introduced real estate investment trusts to the mm. country, did amazing things. Mm. But, you know, he was just looking for how to help build a nation. Yeah. And, and was he supported by the, the banks in those days? Because to get that kind of capital, mm. to do those sorts of developments, uh, A, risky, but B, you need capital. So were the banks supportive or did you have to go somewhere else for money? Well, he, um, they were very supportive um, during the right times of the cycle, yes. but as banks have to do, they have to manage their risk. Yeah. And it was actually in the, um, in the Menzies credit crunch in the early 60s yeah. that he did something very innovative. Mm. He couldn't get any capital in Australia, so he went to New York, and um, he then spoke to the Australian treasurer, Harold Holt, mm. and had the regulations changed and was enabled to bring in FDI into Australia to fund his business. So mm. he had a huge competitive advantage by tapping into the US capital at that time. Yeah. So he was very creative in terms of where he sourced his capital and how he grew his business. Okay, so let's just talk about um, the industry now. If I ran a business and you're a chair of LJ Hooker and I kept seeing newspapers all the time talking about property price collapse and stuff like that, if I would form an opinion about whether they're right or wrong. 
what's your feeling? And obviously, you talked to what five hundred different franchisee owners or five hundred officers around the country. So, mm -hmm. what's your reaction when you see these sort of negative stories about property in Australia? Oh, look, it's um, we've got a very much a Australia-wide view on it, and as mm -hmm. you mentioned, we've got you know five hundred officers in 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 every town and city across the nation. Yeah, and you know journalists are concentrated in the major metros. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to take a view on what's going on, particularly in maybe Sydney, in, mm. in most cases, and sometimes in Melbourne. Yeah. So, you know, our view is is that real estate is a long-term investment. Um, if you look at any property cycle, and as I said, our business has been through 12 of them, mm. you'll have a couple of years on a tightening market, which you might be seeing now in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but if you look at the regional areas and, and in Queensland, you, you've got a market that's still uh, got positive growth. Mm. So it really depends on... If you've got a long-term view on property, you know, you're going to survive through the cycles yep. and do very well. Um, and different times of the cycle, different parts of the market will perform. And we're going into a season, particularly with uh, perhaps an election, if not uh, this side of Christmas, certainly perhaps in 2019, with one of the, poli uh, uh, the opposition party talking about negative gearing and changes to the discount rate. We're going to see sort of that sort of impact on the property market if we get changes in tax policies. That, uh, what, how do you sort of see that playing out, at least from a, an investor's point of view in property? Look, there's lots of papers and, and analysis have been done at the, the sort of the last election cycle mm. that was done on this. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, property is a long-term hold. Mm. So, you know, depending on what policy ends up being, mm. it's not going to impact the long-term value of it. There mm. might be some short-term fluctuations, just as like there are in any cycle, but you've got to look at the long-term intrinsic value of it. And if you're looking for an asset that's an inflation hedge and that can grow equity, then property is going to be it, regardless of short-term election cycles. Mm. Yeah, we often have argued that they'll also have to get the, the more prickly types of legislation through the Senate and there might be a, a Senate that says no to some of those changes as well. Yep, it's, um, you know, it's, we've been here before mm. and uh, I think we've seen many, many election cycles and mm. many, many property cycles and the fundamental is if you hold property in Australia over any period, five to ten years, you're going to be doing very well in terms of building up equity. Okay. Let's talk about digitisation and the growth of uh, online and everything else that's going on in real mm. estate. We've seen uh, the huge success of uh, groups like um, REA and Domain. Um, what does that mean for uh, an agent and, and the traditional way the property was uh, transferred and exchanged in terms of some of the changes around digitisation? Is, is, is the industry itself mm. undergoing fundamental change? Well, the, the striking thing about our industry is, is that there hasn't been a huge amount of innovation um, over the 90 years that we've been in business. Mm. The fundamental transaction hasn't changed dramatically. There's about 200 things you need to do from listing to selling a property. But the ability for certain elements now to be automated, in particular with mobile technology coming on and artificial intelligence and a lot of other things coming in, you can actually automate a large number of those transactions. What that does is it enables the agent to actually be freed up and spend more time during the face-to-face -face elements of the transaction, mm -hmm. which is fundamentally the most critical yeah. part of it. Mm. But uh, has, for example, the, the, the development of um, websites like REA, I, I know myself when I'm ever looking for property, it is such 
an easier experience rather than waiting for the Wentworth Courier coming mm. out on, on Wednesday or Thursday or the equivalent paper around the country that shows you what's in your area. Th that, those kind of things, has it made it easier or harder for agents? No, it's definitely made it easier. The mm. portals have made life much easier mm. because now the consumer gets to see a much broader part of the market mm. and they can therefore transact more freely. So the portals have done a great job in terms of empowering the consumer and the agents with presenting their stock. So it's another channel, whether it's their personal databases, whether it's the Wentworth Courier, whether it's realestate.com, these are all channels that are very useful to actually servicing the customer better. Yeah. So in terms of the company where you want to take this to in this digital age, what's LJ Hooker going to look like in 10 years' time? Well, look, if you look at, look at our history, um, we've, uh, you know, we were the first real estate company in Australia to have a website. We were the first to develop our own CRMs. Uh, many of the first apps we, we created. Mm -hmm. So I'd look at going forward is, is that businesses now are going to need to have technology that enables the consumer to have a better experience, which they're now demanding. For instance, there many consumers now are using apps like Uber and so forth. Mm -hmm. So they're wanting to have an experience now that empowers them more. Um, and building apps that can enable the consumer to have a, a more interactive experience with the transaction and in particular with the agent. But then making the agent more productive. So taking the agent away from the mundane tasks, um, for instance like loading up listings to a portal or something mm. like that, automating those things so that the agent can spend more time actually servicing the customer face to face. Do you think that um, the, the challenges for real estate agents are actually going to be made easier or harder because of the digital age? Because you, know, you, you, you snuck in the words artificial intelligence, which worries people sometimes thinking that they'll lose their jobs. But mm. you, you seem to be saying that it actually would, would make the face-to-face -face interaction um, better, more mm. time for it. Is that what you're saying? The vast majority of agents are spending a vast majority of their time um, having to do back office work. Mm. And if you can automate certain elements of the transaction, therefore you can actually service your customer better um, by pressing the flesh with them and speaking to them on the telephone, which artificial intelligence can't do. Okay, mate. Well, I look forward to seeing you in 10 years' time when we celebrate 100 years not out for LJ Hooker. Excellent. It's going to be great. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Paul, what do you reckon is going on in the property market? Giannis didn't really want to you know, go long in his predictions, but what do you think is going on? Yeah, Peter, look, we've seen before, particularly Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane property markets, they have periods of quick growth and then they splutter along and stumble along for quite periods of time. I think we're in the spluttering stage. We had you know, four or five years of really solid growth in these mm. markets. They come off the boil, they'll go a bit quiet. We'll hear doom and... A lot of predictions about property collapse, I don't believe a word of it. I think markets are just going to be a bit softer for a while. It's going yeah. to be a buyer's market, and, and if you are looking for mm. your first home or an investment property, it's a great time, but you can be afford to be patient and you can afford to be a bit selective. Yeah. It's time for all the people who miss the auctions to start turning up and they'll probably get a good bargain. First-home buyers might end up picking up some of these apartments that can't, yep. can't be sold by people who won't you know, go, go through with their, their 10% a d deposit, it could be a great opportunity for buying. And I think, from my point of view, it's not going to be a devastation or a disaster. It's just going to be a slower market. This is just a natural correction to a market that went up very quickly. It has a little pullback. And sometimes these pullbacks just last a bit longer than we think. Yeah.
That's the show for today, Paul. Thanks for joining us. That's the Switzer Show. We'll talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>